1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads, the grateful edition uh, from the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always, I am joined by my partners in crime, Angeline Stanford and Tim McIntosh. I like that better than The Inimitable because I just feel like it's more uh, appropriate. I think it's, I just feel like it makes more sense given the nature of, you know, our it life.
3: is a life goal of mine to be called a partner in crime. I'm super happy right now. <laughs> I really feel like I've missed my call. Like I could have been Bonnie to someone's Clyde. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying.
2: <laughs> well, you wouldn't have lived very long. Tim, how's it going? <laughs> it's great.
1: Long David. Answer, David. <laughs> I, am, I am i'm hello what what'd you say tim i was just say i have successfully finished my cross-country voyage i'm mm-hmm. back in eugene and i'll be back in seattle in four or five days wow, wow. done driving i'm be done driving
2: so is the Seattle address the address that uh, that you gave me to send stuff to?
1: Yes, that's the one. Okay, that's so the one.
2: You'll have a. You'll have a. Uh, you'll be there before Christmas.
1: I will definitely be there before Christmas.
2: All right, you've got a Christmas present waiting there from me. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, oh,
3: and I have successfully kept it a secret all this time. Yes.
2: There's. <laughs> <Good job. laughs> hey,
1: you, it, it's not too late. It could still. They're like. <laughs>
3: Should I blurt Secret it could out? Could be
1: revealed, right? Right. It still
3: You're slip up. About party. I almost blurted it out to you, and then I was like, "Wait, I have not had confirmation that you received this."
1: Hey, <laughs> by the way, by the way, we have like been talking on the close reads Facebook page about the gifts that we have received, yeah, but we didn't talk said, about them last week.
3: Yeah, that's why. That's I said, why he said this is the grateful edition. The yes. Grateful
2: edition.
1: Oh, now yeah. I was like going to ask you about
2: that. Of course, that makes sense because we didn't get. We are. We got those after we recorded, remember? Yes, yeah. that's right. So, yes, for those of you who are not a part of the shenanigans over on the Facebook group, we need to say thank you uh, once more publicly to everyone who was involved in the um, trickeration. Surprise and, uh, of the subterfuge. century? Yeah, the subterfuge, the surprise of getting us, uh, each of us, uh, some really great folio books. Um and now that I look back and see all the nonsense that was going on, I'm, I'm a little impressed at the way that they pulled that off. So thanks. Okay, to what uh, did you guys what did you guys get? Oh, you don't know what we got. Okay, so Tim, you got why don't you go first?
1: I received a folio diary. Okay, so let me let me let me just describe how I actually got it. Apparently, unbeknownst to me, there was a secret Facebook collective. Yeah. Of close readers. Jokos who The Jokos reads who were kind of tracking my trip across the country and they kind of didn't know where I was going to end up when.
3: Yes, so, so we because I just found out, and I can't stop laughing about this, that I was their source for where you were and I was the worst <laughs> possible source. <laughs> <laughs> I had them on the most wild goose chases, but I didn't know that they wanted something specific. So I was just, I was just very, very big and so someone contacted me and was like so is Tim going to be with his family for christmas i get, you know now i realize they're asking me are you going to be in georgia right right so, yeah just answer no he went back to seattle which of course you were not back in seattle right and i didn't mean to say you were back in seattle it just meant you had started your journey back to seattle but yes. little did i And that started the flutter of, oh, no, he's actually in Seattle. But really, you were in Tennessee. So was the worst possible source. And I'm really sorry about that.
1: Well, you must have done something right. Because when I arrived here in Eugene at my friend Beth and Walter's house, that's where I am right now. I'm kind of walking around their living rooms. We're having this conversation. When I arrived back, I was so – I had just driven – 10 and a half hours across the Cascade Mountains in the dark and it was kind of starting to snow. Yeah, I'd already like had like Yeah, I was listening to Helter Skelter. I had already done like five hours of work that morning before I started driving. I mean, I was so exhausted and so tired of being on the road. Then I walk into Beth and Walter's house, and there's this package on the bed that I'm staying. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? And I kind of deduced based on the address that it might have been a gift from close readers. And so I got a beautiful, beautiful uh, Anna Karenina Karenina hardbound with this lovely inscription, a folio diary, um, a bunch of, maybe the best thing was all these notes that everybody wrote right they were just so wonderful um and apparently i think there's a there's a bottle of bourbon waiting for me in seattle that's what i got what did you guys get I, and i'm just so man i cannot tell you it was so terrific to receive that stuff and i and the timing could not possibly have been better it, it was i was so tired and just kind of blue and I walked into all these lovely
2: gifts.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, it was pretty. So we they presented our gifts during the party here at the office. And we were just they like... They
3: completely blindsided me. And then they filmed me being blindsided. And so I'm <laughs> going to say this on the air because they were watching us. They were watching the video while this was happening, right? And I knew that they were. So I was forcing myself in that moment to stay in front of the camera. But I just want y'all to know, I took one for the team, close readers, because what I really wanted to do was run and find Karen Kern and just fall into her arms and weep with gratitude privately (laughs) off camera. But I didn't do it. (laughs) So instead, when you see me all acting uncomfortable in my own body, like I don't know what to do with myself, that was why.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what did you get?
3: Oh, I got, so I got a gorgeous folio edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales. It's just absurdly beautiful, and it had the most magical inscription that just left me completely speechless, and I got a folio diary also, and a bottle of Malbec, and the most just heartfelt, perceptive, thoughtful messages, and Touched me so very, very deeply, and guys, just thank you all so much you you have no you have no idea, you have no yeah. idea
2: <laughs> well, like I said, uh I think I said this after we opened the gifts, and I've said it, i mean I've said it before, if, like if you see the patreon video um we just we, when I, well I posted this on Facebook, I don't know if you guys saw it. I said when I asked you guys if you wanted to be on the show you're both like, what's a podcast? Um, (laughs) might've been joking. I don't, I don't really know. No,
3: I was not joking. My, 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 my children had to explain to me what a podcast was.
2: And so basically my cell was, let's just talk about books and see if and if someone listens, great. And so you guys were like, okay. So, um, we started doing it and you know, it's been a kind of a slow burn. I mean, this is not a podcast that has, it does fine for us. Right. And so but it's not like the kind of podcast that's blowing the ratings out of the water or anything. It's not going to show up on the, you know, on the iTunes charts. And like, at first I was kind of like, well, let's just see what happens. And then I started wondering, Oh, it's going to start growing and doing pretty well. And then I realized that it's kind of like, it doesn't need to be the kind of show that is like, you know, uh, what's the like some giant npr show or like right uh one of those this american shows. life this american life or or what's the show that everyone was listening to serial it doesn't need to serial like right but because like the community that's built around it if it just grows steadily and slowly and it's just like close and tight-knit and we have good conversations like that's all it needs to be and so but but then i was shocked by just how many people were really contributing and being a part of the community and like the facebook group sort of was the instigator for that like grandma and i thought well let's just get this facebook group going because people obviously like talking about books and we'll see what happens and then it just became something entirely like it it's the the amount of people who are on there every day posting like yeah like jesse brown posting 60 times a day i mean jesse do you have do you not have anything better to do with your life Um, i'm just i'm just no
3: david she does not what kind of question is that?
2: <laughs> I'm just teasing. She's
3: been stalking me faithfully she, for years now. And it's finally paid off for me. <laughs> she,
2: she, was, she was one of the ringleaders behind this whole thing. So I'm going to do something here. Well, Tim, I'll answer your question. They gave me um, two folio copies of uh, of um, John Le Carré books, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold Ooh. and Tinker Taylor, which, as you know, are two of my favorite books. So those were, yeah, that was pretty exciting.
3: And then Graham got something. Graham got a folio <laughs> of The Hobbit.
2: He did, yeah, yeah. And um,
3: alcohol.
2: Everyone alcohol. Right, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. So actually, Brandon sends me Brandon LeBlanc. Shout out to Brandon. He we talk regularly because he does helps us with some stuff here at Cersei. So we talk every week at least. And so he sends me this random text one day. It's like, Do you like this certain brand of whiskey or whatever? He's like, I think it's near you. Do you anything about that town? And actually that <laughs> might have been what he said. He said, Do you know anything about this town? And I said, I think it's so however far away and it's very small and all that and he's like yeah i think that's where deviant whiskey is and i was like oh okay cool he's like is that any good I was like i, I don't know well done so um he i, I you know I, I thought he just wanted ge- geographical information but maybe he was thinking about like you know parking a food truck there or something right um, but uh but so i didn't think anything of it and then that's what was in my my bag was that whiskey so
3: what's so funny to me is listening to them now tell the story of how they pulled this off and how you and tim were so difficult to figure out but no one had any trouble knowing exactly what i might want (laughs) (laughs) all over that facebook page
2: (laughs) so before we get into the book i'm going to do something a little for people who don't like banter they're they're going to hate this but this is what i'm going to do they're in the
3: wrong show if they don't like banter i'm just going to say it
2: but the people who did this sent us some notes also and in that note, it had a list of names. So these are the people that we need to thank. And I'm going to say their names publicly right now on the show. Yes. Um, so it's gonna take a minute. So just bear with me. But thank some you. some of those
3: people were my students, and I was all undone.
2: Oh, that is <clears> nice. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, so thank you to uh Tim, why don't you give us a drum roll? <laughs> well done. Wow. Okay, thank wow. you to thank you to. I'm just going to say first names because otherwise it'll take forever to Amy and Andrea and Angela and Angela and Anna and April and Beth and Bonnie and Bonnie and Brandon and Brandon and Brittany and Cassie and Cassie and Chandra and Chris and Christine. And if I say your name wrong, I apologize. And Dara and Helen and David and Axton. uh, I think I got that right. And Don and Diane and Diana and Elizabeth and Fern and Hannah and Jamie and Jana and Gina or Gianna. And then Jennifer and Jennifer and Jessica and Jessica and Jill and John and Jonathan and Karen and Carla and Catherine and Catherine and, Catherine and Katie and Katie and Andy and Kelly and Kelly and Kelly and Kelly, and Kelly and Kelly and Kelly and Kelly and there's a lot of Kelly's and Kelly and Carrie and,
3: and we love all
0: of you
2: we, uh, equally and Kim and Kimberly and Laura and Laura and Lori and Leanne and Leela or Leila and Leslie and Mary and Mary and Mary, Mary Joe and Melanie and Melinda and Melissa and Melissa and Mike and Eliza and Molly and Maria and Nicole and Pamela and Rachel and Renee and Rudy and Susan and Ruth and Sarah and Shanna and Sue and Susan and Susan and Tara and Tani and the Donnelly family. So thank you to all of you who contributed to that to that really special gift. I wanted yeah, to just give you a you, shout out. You, yeah. And some of you yeah. I probably know you and may have just said your name wrong, but I wasn't looking at last names. I was just reading first names. So I apologize if I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay but we are actually here to talk about 12th night act four so why don't we go ahead and do that act four problem act is the problem act yeah he solved
3: he solved this problem act by just like being like 30 second interlude
2: yeah yeah right it's very very short
3: he's like problem act i just won't write you
2: yeah (laughs) yeah we talked i mean
1: so last week we talked about how typically Act Act 4 for Shakespeare is a problem act because everything has been set up and everything is poised toward a climax and a resolution, but then comes an interlude, Act 4. I, I mentioned Hamlet is like the unperformed act in almost every production you've ever seen. They never produce it. Uh, but this one was different for me. This one, it actually... Everything, like, he actually aligned things a little bit further with the relationship mm-hmm. between Sebastian and Olivia.
3: Mm-hmm. And brings out some very important thematic stuff in scene two with Malvolio. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Short, oh, yeah. But
3: he It's short and it, uh, I don't, what am I trying to say? It doesn't feel like he just prolonged act three and it doesn't right. feel like he's stalling act five i mean it it, it works it's it's well done
2: yes let's talk about
3: and we don't mean when we say that it's a problem act that it's it's a problem for shakespeare right it's a problem of the form it's a challenge that shakespeare has to constantly overcome
2: yeah so maybe the maybe it's not maybe the thing is he solved it for this play like, right. with, with, it's
3: worth mentioning of course that you know shakespeare is is <laughs> doing some it, all of shakespeare's plays follow the same form right and we mentioned that last week but he's violating a lot of renaissance forms and is doing something very different than say ben johnson who's going with the more classical aristotelian form for plays shakespeare violates all of that does his own thing all the time you know um okay so uh, so can you can, right so it has to be in real time right so the action has to take place in two hours or whatever, not two months or, you know, three months or, you know, you have to deal with real time. It has to be in one place. Um, and so Shakespeare flips back and forth and he's messing with time and he's got lots of locations. And he's, so he's not following any of Aristotle's unities. But I'm sure Tim has a lot more to say about that.
2: Well, can you, um, can you break, can one of you at least, break that down a little bit for people who aren't as familiar with the classical forms and what Ben Johnson was imitating in those Aristotelian forms that you're talking about?
1: Angelina, I actually think you're better on this than I am.
3: Oh, really? I think I might have just said everything I actually know, and I was hoping I could just hand it off to you.
2: (laughs) Can you give a couple of bullet points on what, like, what was Ben Johnson doing? What were the more, what, what were some of those forms that Shakespeare was not? Well, the unities
3: that I'm talking about for time and place, in particular,
2: which probably come from, not probably, they come from
1: Aristotle.
3: Yes. The Aristotle's unities for form. So the play has to take place in real time for for Ben Jonson, right? So okay. if the play lasts two hours, you are watching two hours of action. And Shakespeare would say, Shakespeare would be like, and then the next day, and then the next month, and a month later, right? And same thing with uh the geography of it. So what you're seeing on the stage is one location. But Shakespeare is going to go to different countries, even. He's going to flip back and forth from Scotland to England to France. You know, he's He's all over the globe. He's all over time. Ben Jonson did not like that. Of course, and this is why Shakespeare fell out of favor, right? Because after the Renaissance, you have the neoclassical movement. They were all about Ben Jonson. Hmm. For them, Shakespeare was not interesting because he violated the form. Um, and so they were not interested in Shakespeare's imagination or what he was doing or the innovations. Um, they just saw him as someone who failed because he did not keep Aristotle's forms
2: but of course he was still working within a form. Oh,
3: absolutely. You know, he, right. He
2: had his own, I don't know if you want to say he invented I
3: mean, it. I think um, what Shakespeare does that's so great is that he kind of takes, I, I think he gives us the fullness of the form by, by, by turning it into something essentially Christian, you know, with the five act play and then the, then the structure that it follows. And, uh, so I think he's far more interesting than, than someone like Ben Johnson. But I mean, Ben Johnson was huge in his day. I mean, the Elizabethan period was insane for talent, just ridiculous. I remember one of my Shakespeare professors saying that if Shakespeare had not lived in, in, during the Renaissance, I mean, you would have you know, 10 plays that everybody would be talking about as the great Elizabethan poets and, and playwrights, I mean, because they were just extraordinary. You had Marlowe and Johnson and all those guys, but Shakespeare eclipses them all. Because he was just insane, <laughs> just yeah. insanely talented. Uh, that, but that's to give you some perspective. Like he's the best at a time that was the best.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's because he was seven people. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: know he's what, really David?
2: Can I can I take that up a
1: little bit? That <laughs> the joke is that not the joke. The theory, the theory is that, yeah. Shakespeare theory, that, uh, that Shakespeare wasn't theory. That that Shakespeare wasn't that <laughs> Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare that or he wasn't francis bacon
2: one, there was more well there's a lot of different theories on it right like it could there were theories that there's diff, there's four or five different theories on whether it's one specific person and then there's right. that it's a whole troop of people that were writing his plays and that there may be have been mm-hmm. may have been one person named william shakespeare but he was only just a part of this crew of Shakespeare of playwrights right or was a pseudonym it,
1: I find that really hard to believe. It's a fun thing that you know students can kind of sink their teeth into Shakespeare by saying, oh, but was there really a Shakespeare behind Shakespeare? Was it Francis Bacon or somebody like that?
2: Yeah, I love that. And the
1: question yeah. is, um, that sometimes comes up because they say, oh, Shakespeare didn't really have an access to the sort of education that he would have needed to have in order to write the sorts of plays with their knowledge of latin and of history and of flora and fauna and battles and that's just um ignorant i don't know any other way to say it like shakespeare's (laughs) education (laughs) was like it was incredible he had and you know what he had kind of a classical christian education if i can plug Circe a little bit i mean that's probably what it most resembled it certainly resembled that much more than it resembled like a modern public education it uh, he didn't No, he didn't have anything like that, which, thank God, because now we would have not had a Shakespeare if he had attended the public high school of modern America. (laughs) I'm so down. I just, I'm I'm rabbit trailing here. I just taught my last um, class of the day for my classical students with Scully Academy. I had a student just ask, okay, what did she ask me? Gracie is going to get a shout out. She said, I hope Mr. Mack. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Mr. Mack, is the opposite of DK chaos or injustice? And I was like, I turned to my friend Walter and I was like, can you believe a high school student is asking me that question? It was just so. And that question just doesn't get asked in public high school. I've taught public high school i'm really ripping public high school but i just <laughs> believe in the education like a different form of education shakespeare had something much more like that form of education
2: but what's interesting is just how much this theory or this series of theories has actually sort of um taken hold of the like literary world's imagination over the last hundred years because there are many many books written about this topic right, uh, I, right.
0: Had to oh, okay. I had to write a paper on
2: i had to write a thesis on it in college and you know there's there's no shortage of books so if you're interested in finding some of these theories there are even books about all the theories and saying which one they think is right so let alone each. could
1: i give my i i think there are two reasons why the theory is plausible number one is the sheer incredible prodigious output of genius 37 plays. Some of them are not as good as Hamlet and Macbeth and um, Twelfth Night. But 35 of them are, you know, 33 of them are. They're just like unrivaled (laughs) works of genius. And to think like that one man generated all of these works, that's just a really tough thing to accept. But it's acceptable, but it's just tough to accept. The other thing, and I think this actually probably did happen, is that Shakespeare didn't work alone. He was part of a troupe. The troupe changed it. So the equivalent today would be, what do they call it? A repertory theater. In a repertory theater, you have core members who are actors, and the theater selects plays that conform to the casting capabilities of the repertory theater of the troupe Shakespeare had that um you know the numbers sometimes the number of people swelled sometimes the number decreased sometimes but he had one main actor that played virtually all of his lead roles uh Angelina his name is escaping me Richard Burbage Richard Burbage
3: yes that's it that's it
1: widely accepted as one of the great actors in the history of England, if not the history of uh, Europe, he played Hamlet in Macbeth. And I don't know what he would have played in this. Maybe he would have played Orsino in this, in Twelfth Night. But Shakespeare wrote for these guys. And I can't help but think that they contributed a lot to the final form of the play. You know, they, they're, these are tremendously eloquent men. Of course, there are no women in the troupe. Tremendously eloquent men. They surely had some poetic gifting because they're always performing incredible poetic works. And my thought is, you know what? They probably helped sand and shape some of the scenes that we now have in our Shakespeare collected works.
3: Wait, yeah. was that the end? I'm waiting. Is that the end? Is it? Is that? Did you just take a bow? Are you finished? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just took a bow and a not just a bow, a flourish.
3: <laughs> I really hope there was a flourish. Yeah. So here's here's my two cents on this. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the weirdo Angelina response. Ready? Which I know you'll really come be to. gonna five it. cents? <laughs> Nice, David. Nice. I can count. Okay, so, so here's my weird Angelina uh, answer, which I know we've all come to expect—the weird Angelina answer. Who cares? Like, who seriously cares, right? For me, Shakespeare is the man that I encounter in the plays. That is the voice I hear. That is the imagination I am exposed to. Like, I don't understand this obsession with knowing who he actually was historically it seems like such a modern obsession um, the whole idea of the author and his relationship to the work and all that such a modern idea works have been anonymous for a long time because that just it was the work that was the thing right not the person and, and Tolkien even warned about being overly biographically obsessed so yeah, yeah. so I'm saying that it's not like, like you can do it right you can pursue that scholarly thing i don't think it changes how i read these plays i don't think it changes what these plays mean to me or to the world or to the canon or or anything right and the voice that i hear as i read these plays is the same voice it is a consistent voice i'm not like being jolted around like wow how did he now he's playing jazz now you know it's, it's not like that right i mean i hear a consistent voice and a consistent imagination, um, through all of these plays and whoever this man is. And and so I just don't get, I don't get obsessed with, with with this question because it doesn't change what these plays mean to me. And it kind of reminds me of a joke. I like to tell my students all the time, because there's also controversy, you know, over Homer, and did Homer really exist? And mm-hmm. who is Homer? And he could not have possibly written all of this. You know, the same. It's the same thing. And and the joke that goes around is, no, you're right. Homer did not write the Iliad and the Odyssey. It was another blind poet named Homer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: just a way of saying it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah.
2: I agree with that, but I think the reason that it's you know, I mean, people enjoy biographies, right? So like people just like to know about charles dickens or something like if you love charles dickens or you love wendell berry or you love whoever then people are interested in that person so then it just becomes a whole you know people are just interested in it i don't think it changes how you read the plays but just if if people are interested in that sort of thing then it's an interesting you know rabbit trail to go down so to speak but i don't i think you're totally right that i don't think there's any reason to to start pursuing different avenues or angles of reading the plays or to 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 start thinking that he's trying to do something different than what he was doing or 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 that the plays exist in some other plane because of, based on who the authors were or, or whatever.
3: Right. right, and sometimes some of these scholarly theories will try to make the plays be political based on who they think wrote them. and And Shakespeare's not political, not in that sense. Right, uh, right. And so you know that 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 gets me concerned too, like don't start looking for oh well Henry V is really supposed to be this guy in modern Elizabethan politics, and blah blah, you know like no, that's not what's going on here
1: <laughs> yeah, it kind of a, it kind of effaces the work in a, in the kind of biographical quest, and I agree with you i am curious about Shakespeare's identity for the reasons that David mentioned, like
3: for it's the secondary. same reason I'm
1: curious about it's yeah, it's absolutely secondary, but I'm just curious about like what Shakespeare the man was like, just like I'm curious what Wendell Berry the man is like. Um, And for that reason, I think it's an interesting conversation to have. But Angelina is exactly right. The concerns in the canon, Shakespeare's canon, are so similar. Um, And that you can see this kind of, for me at least, I, I see a single author because the concerns are so... Oh, they're so consistent from the earliest plays to the latest plays. They're not mm-hmm. all the same, but he really shares the same. He's kind of obsessing over the same sorts of questions. Yeah. Oh, I would argue he might be. I think there's one question he's obsessed about more than any other, and it's unfortunately not in Twelfth Night. It's kingly power and the abuse of kingly power um or at least like an ultimate authority. So maybe the tempest doesn't have a king in it, but you do have one person who is in charge of this entire island. Hmm.
0: Um oh, but he funny. is
1: he yeah. is obsessed with that question and boy living in his time it makes a lot of sense why he might be interested in that question.
3: Now that's really interesting because I also think that Shakespeare has a single obsession and I was I was like he's not going to say what I'm thinking. But you did, but you may use different words than I would have done. I, I, I think, but it's the, I'm agreeing with you, though, but I'm just putting to put a different spin on it. I yeah. think that Shakespeare is obsessed with order, and that order is rooted in the king.
0: Yeah. And,
3: um, and then he, he just shows what happens when, when there's disorder. And, and the king himself can be disordered, of course, or there can be an attack on the king, but um, everything starts to unravel. So things are centered – his idea of order is very centered around that that idea of kingly authority. Well, so yeah, I
2: completely – And of course that does sh- – that. if you put it that way, it does show up at Twelfth Night.
3: Yes, the order That's, idea does.
1: Um, even a, a comedy like Measure for Measure, I mean it's basically the beginning. The beginning of Measure for Measure is it – I think it's the governor of the town is leaving, and he leaves his right-hand man in charge. But he's actually not leaving. He's actually going undercover because he wants to see how his town is actually running. So he kind of, I think he, I think he dresses up as a priest, as a traveling priest or something like yes. that.
0: Yes,
1: Um. And so kind of like he willingly removes himself from the throne so that he can see just how orderly his kingdom is after all. And of course, it kind of starts to really fall apart and everything starts to get abused when he's gone. And then he unmasks himself, just like we've talked about in uh, so many other Shakespeare plays. He unmasks himself, takes off his disguise, his true self is there, and he, everything is restored to order once he does that.
3: Mm-hmm. Always, always, always. The, even in the tragedies, there's a movement from chaos to order, always.
0: Yeah, um, well,
3: but in, in Twelfth Night, though it's while it's not a strong motif, I did underline a single line in this Act Four that I thought was was a nod to what we're talking about, and that's where um, Sir Andrew says, "If there be any law in Illyria," and huh. and I thought that was an interesting nod to connecting or, the order and the chaos that they're experiencing with the question of is there law in this place.
2: Well, and it seems like so. At the end of Act Three, we talked about how it kind of built to this climactic moment where, it, you know, there's like very real chaos going on, and so how does it all get unravelled? And it starts to get unravelled here in Act Four in some ways, even as it gets more complicated, which is an interesting, you know, accomplishment for Shakespeare. Um, so it we starts should... to get unravelled, David.
3: I think that, he means. I think that he means that the. the... <laughs>
0: Yeah.
3: I think he means the tangle of the plot begins to unravel a little bit. Right. We don't see oh, it, yeah. that movement of Olivia and Sebastian getting betrothed, that is a that is a movement toward what's going to be the resolution, right. but it is in and of itself the resolution.
2: Right. That's what I meant. Like It's, just, it's
3: still an act of Strock, confusion. Strock, so yeah, structural so yeah, so, movement. Yeah, so act four ends up being brilliant in that <sighs> in that one moment when Olivia and Sebastian become betrothed, it is an act of confusion. It is an act of mistaken identity, and yet it is going to be the thing that will bring back the clarity and unravel it.
2: I was going to ask you guys about that because I think that's the sort of scene that a lot of people have trouble with in certain Shakespeare plays. Like they're just kind of roll their eyes at it because all of a sudden Sebastian just decides, oh, I'm in love with this person, right? Um, (laughs) But that's how
3: everybody's (laughs) been acting in this play. This is completely consistent.
2: Right, right, exactly. But that's one of the things that, you know, people who are used to a novel for example where people where i you know i just interviewed benedict whalen dr benedict whalen from hillsdale and i was just mentioning this before we recorded and and um people may have already listened to to that interview but he talks about how there is a scholar who refers to this scene as the husband ex machina um (laughs) (laughs) that's great i I love it and so we he was talking about how um yeah it, it is sort of consistent with what's been going on and it also reveals just the extent to which viola is different than everybody else including her brother like because of her steadiness and her constancy and everyone else is just so wishy-washy and so it begins even though she's not on the stage it reveals a lot about her and olivia is like the opposite of her she just sees you know uh i mean sebastian is like the opposite he's like okay whatever right now (laughs) um but do you guys see this as a problem in under, in experiencing Shakespeare? Like, it just feels like it happens. All so right, okay. No I'm going to get up on my
3: soapbox for this. Can I get up on my soapbox?
2: I would expect nothing less.
3: Okay. <laughs> okay, so here's my soapbox. This is what I'm always telling my students. You must let the form dictate the rules of how you read, right? And And a Shakespeare comedy has forms, right? Nobody in a... Sh- Shakespeare comedy is slowly falling in love. Everybody's having a moment where they're knocked upside the head and fall in love. This is how these things work, right? Because it's always about the sudden revelation. That's that's thematically what is happening. And in this play, of course, we have the topsy turvy thing, right? So it, it, everybody is going to fall in love very quickly here, and then it's going and it's and it's, uh, it's a madness of emotion, as we've said before. And then, but there's going to be one character. In, in the midst of this tornado of mad emotions, who's going to be constant and steadfast. And that's Viola, right? She is the steadfast, unmovable character from the very first time we meet her to the end of this play. She loves one person and one person only. And everybody else is, their just emotions are everywhere. And like, wherever they look, that's just where they fall in love. And that's the nature of this play. And if you're expecting them to act like rational, slow, well, let's, if you expect Sebastian in Act 4 to be like, I think you're cute. I don't actually know who you are. And you probably have me mistaken for someone else. So let's get a coffee and get to know each other. Then you don't know what play you're in.
2: <laughs> no, that's, that, that, I don't, but the, to me, that's a, I agree with that, but it's a different question than I think what I'm kind of suggesting. Okay. So what probably. is
3: the question that you're asking? Because I yeah. heard you asking. Uh, yeah. Tell me what you're no, asking.
2: I, I don't mean, I, I'm most likely I asked it wrong. So I, I completely agree that you have to allow the form to dictate your experience at least i mean you're going to experience it how you experience it but your understanding of it your approach to it but but what i'm saying is that the form itself is the kind of thing that people roll their eyes at like that that is that it is the kind of form of the kind of world or the kind of story that such a thing would happen is something that people just you know think is ridiculous and is that just a modern way of looking at things is that would that be your fallback answer on that So it's not that.
3: Some version of that would be my follow-up. I mean, this play (laughs) has a very, this play, like most Shakespeare comedies, has a fairy element to it, and and I even underline and I wanted to bring this up. So we'll probably bring this up later because I want to really explore this because Sebastian has a couple of lines that I think readers are going to take as as a throwaway line, but are really essential to understanding this madcap fairy land. And he says, "Am I asleep? Is this a dream?" And then he Mm. says, "If I'm dreaming, I hope I stay asleep." that yes. that yep. is what yep. Yep. happened That what happens in the fairyland it is a dream and you are in a dreamlike state and people are acting the way that they act in dreams right time is compressed things happen very quickly uh, they're nonsensical they don't make sense lots of non sequiturs right um and so sebastian's in a dream here and this this is what happens in dreams you wake up from a dream and you're madly in love with some person you dreamed about and there's no good reason for it
1: is, are, is the part yes. that you're talking about, Angelina, um, right after Sebastian has kind of fallen in mm-hmm. love? Is that the time that you're...
3: Yes, right at the end yeah. of four scene one,
2: act four. Oh, at, the end of, at the end of one, yeah, okay.
3: At the end of one, so line 60, what relishes in this, how runs the stream, or am I mad? So, okay, so he puts together madness, dreaming, sleep, imagination, and forgetfulness, all here, which, by the way, Patreon sponsors, if you listen to my talk about the disguise motif, those are the four things that I said is always true in the Shakespeare plays with the disguise motif, and he puts them all in the same speech here, right? So madness, dreaming, sleeping, awake, forgetfulness, imagination, all of that, he puts it all all in these four lines. Am I mad? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Or uh, I am mad, or else this is a dream. Let fancy, which means imagination, still my sense in lethous sleep, which means that's the river of forgetfulness. If it be thus to dream, still let me sleep. Hmm. Now, this actually, well, what this does is actually flips the motif on its head because everywhere else, characters begin asleep. In, for, in a state of forgetfulness in a dreamlike state and then they move toward waking up remembering and all, all of that is connected to self-knowledge and the revelation at the end at the end they are their disguise is off they have woken up they have remembered they've cast off the dream um and so sebastian here is actually saying i want to stay asleep i want to not remember yeah. i want to forget um, so he's, he's choosing to stay in in the place of of you know not knowing himself which in scene two that's going to come up again because Malvolio will say, this madness is this madness of ignorance. It's the hell of ignorance. So, I mean, so you, again, you have this idea of self-knowledge as a movement toward the fullness of your humanity, toward movement toward heaven, and ignorance uh, as a movement toward hell and darkness. And so all of that is together in scene two, that Malvolio is in the darkness of hell, and it's the darkness of hell of ignorance. Because the real ignorance here is, is the issue of self-knowledge. That's, that's the knowledge that they lack, that they don't know who they are okay i'm stepping off my soapbox now
2: (laughs) (laughs) well i'm really glad you brought up the fairy concept that fairyland or dreamland concept because dr whalen in that Mm -hmm. interview he mentioned one of the you know there is a this poem was this play was always kind of understood as to have a festive tone which is one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why it was you know related to christmas and all that but it, it got me thinking about the idea of um like almost it's there's this vacation vibe about the whole thing like or they all got trapped on an island somewhere and they're not really worried about what's going on in the rest of their lives it's like the comedic survivor or something (laughs) Um, no
3: that's exactly right that's one of the points that harold goddard makes is that most of the comedies do have a fairyland element but at some point they leave it right so they come to this place of place of self-knowledge and then they leave fairyland and they come back into the real world twelfth and i being the exception they they never leave it. They never leave Fairyland.
2: Well, and one you know you I want to f- ask a question. So after the Sebastian thing here, you mentioned the you know he met she uh, Sebastian mentions madness, dreaming, imagination, and forgetfulness. And then the next line is so he says, "If it be thus to dream, let's let still let me sleep." That seems to harken back to the opening lines from Orsino in a way. Um, the if music be the food of love. And now I know that thematically they're not the Uh, same, but there's even a meter. There's even like a rhythm to the language. Yeah, David. I think you're right.
3: That's a great observation. No, right on to that. Yeah. Because music is what stirs up the emotion of melancholy and he wants to stay in that state.
2: Yep. Okay. So, and so what's really interesting to me is he's like saying, I want to stay in this state. Like I, he's not even, he's not even asking, I'll just put it this way, to be free of it. Like he wants to be captured by it. Mm -hmm. And and what I love about this is he's, like, Shakespeare plays with this idea in the very next line, right? Because Olivia says, nay come I prithee. And then she says, "Wouldst would Mm -hmm. thou, would thou, that's fun, would thou be ruled by me? And so this, like, basically he's saying he wants to, like, fall under the spell or Mm -hmm. be captured or, like, remain in this forgetful fairyland state. And then she says, do you want to be ruled by me? And so Shakespeare is playing with this idea Mm -hmm. of, like, power and being this idea of like being you can be captured or enamored by something but also this other way of looking at that word of like you know to be in her spell is also to be under her power and he's submitting to her power and so you've got this powerful woman who's basically taking power over this dude. And he's like, yeah, I'll do that. And that in its own way was sort of subversive. Sub- sub- you know what I'm saying? Subvers- subversive.
3: It is subversive, but I also think that there's the, the bigger idea of submitting to the power of love because I think that Arsino is also making the same case to Olivia via Cesario, right? Be ruled by this love. Uh, how many times are you saying submit to right. this? Submit yeah. to his love. Submit to, and she won't <laughs> submit to his love. And here Olivia is saying, you know, you're feeling it. You better you give in. And he says, Yes, ma'am.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So and um but that's that's the beautiful thing about Shakespeare, is these things mean so many different things and they can be read in so many different ways. And they're always tying back to something else. Like there's right. this, it's so another the scene twi- that
3: and I really feel like is one of those plays that it can't be the only play that you read of Shakespeare's. Um, not, 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 that doesn't, that's not as common on the quality of it by any means, but just that he's playing, he's subverting and flipping around so many of the themes and motifs that he really explores in depth in other plays. Right. So, you know, Shakespeare does not think that this is a good move to say, I want to stay in a perpetual state of forgetfulness because this feels good. That, that is not where Shakespeare lands on that question in the other plays
2: right right well we haven't we we'll have to we talk to yeah, i want to talk about that that specific idea when we go through act five next week um do we need to talk about malvolio <laughs> <laughs> i don't mean like do we need to talk about malvolio must, no right must we talk about him uh, I, I think make we'll sure talk
1: we- about him next week david okay.
2: That's what I was wondering is do we want to wait till next week? Angelina, do you agree with that? Should we wait and kind of cover the Malvolio subjects in action? Okay,
3: sure. You wanna hold on to scene two until next week? That's fine.
2: If, I mean, we could also set the stage for next week if you want by talking about it now. I'm, this is, Why don't you um, set the stage, Angelina? Okay, let's do that. And then Because we, we only have so much time anyway. So go Okay, ahead and set well, for next it break. starts off
3: with more of the disguise motif, right? So the clown is putting on a disguise and says, I will dissemble myself. So, wow, you know, now we're getting hit over the head by Shakespeare with what his theme means, right? That the disguise really means you're going to deceive yourself. Um, and then he has these conversations with Malvolio. And so Malvolio is in this, you know, this dark cell or whatever. He's locked in in darkness. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One, that was the Renaissance, that was a believed Renaissance cure for madness go be in the dark by yourself, and I guess you would somehow come to your senses. Maybe they thought it was an overstimulation of the senses. I, I don't know why they did that, but they did do that. Um, but then, of course, it's got a a symbolic meaning. This is, this is Malvolio's descent into hell. I mean, just from an archetypal perspective, <laughs> somebody goes sitting in a dark cell by themselves, that is definitely hell. But in case we missed it, he says repeatedly, I'm in hell. This darkness is hell. By the yeah. way, also, I'm in hell, and it's really dark in hell. In case uh, you so,
2: needed to be put to you very specifically and directly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Malvolio is not hey, one for subtlety. The,
3: I'm talking to you, front row, second seat. I'm in hell, just so we're all on the same page. Right. He keeps yeah, so he's making that.
2: I want Can I ask Tim a question about that, actually? Uh-huh. Okay. So, I w- I wanna,
1: there's something I wanted to say about that also. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: well, go for it. Okay, so, Tim, I want to talk to you about performing this. Or how you uh-huh. might direct this, and Angelina, hold the rest of your thought because I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to go away from that.
3: No, you're uh, fine. You're fine.
2: Okay. okay, so line forty of Act Fourteen uh, Two. This is where Mavalia says, "I'm not mad, Sir Topaz. I say to you, this house is dark." And Angelina just mentioned. I think she. I think she just mentioned the audience possibly there. So, if you were performing or directing this, would you be? would you want Malvolio to turn to the audience there or would this be something where it'd be specifically to Sir Topaz or would you want, is this the kind of line where you'd be trying to bring in the audience into the performance of the play?
1: David, I'm sorry. Help me find. So he says, I want to find the exact line it so I can acts, see it. It's uh,
3: line thirty-nine of scene two. Yeah, I don't have
2: lines. Um, oh, oh, give me, oh. give me a string of words. Uh, Mavolio just says, "I'm not mad, Sir Topaz." Um, Go
3: down about thirty lines after Enter Toby.
2: Y- yeah. Um, oh my goodness. Malvolio within is in italics there. Uh, this um,
1: this is act four, scene two. Two, two. Give me a second. He says, Look for
3: the word Pythagoras.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> the class starts go. asking math questions. Is what is great. the opinion
1: of Pythagoras yeah. concerning so white go, uh, go <laughs> yeah.
3: about 10 lines above that, 10 lines above that
2: i am not it's there
0: we
1: it's,
2: go there we go I, I am not mad sir topaz i say to you this yeah. house is dark so obviously they've been talking about it and he's being asked all these questions and sir Topaz and Navolio just keeps bringing up it's it's dark um uh-huh. clown says sayest thou that house is dark Navolio says as hell sir topaz keeps talking and then i'm not mad sir topaz i say to you this house is dark uh-huh would so my question is would you would, that, would you bring in the audience in that in that particular
1: Would you bring the audience in?
2: In other words, would you turn and face the audience on that or would you just turn and talk to Sir Topaz? Like, is that a possible area? You could try. Or does that, does doing that make it too humorous? Or can you build up the pathos in Malvolio's experiences here by turning to the audience and kind of like bemoaning his situation by saying? Yeah.
1: Well, I might have him say it to the audience. I think that's a really clever idea. Because because he's such a difficult character to have sympathy for, but now he's in chains, now he's in prison, now he's in hell. It might be a moment where you could have him speak to the audience and salvage some amount of sympathy for this character who's just been a buffoon the entire play. I kind of like that idea. I, I think that... There's a little bit of fun that Shakespeare is having here. He's talking about being in hell. So in Shakespeare's stage, there would have been a a trap door in the middle of the stage. And the trap door went down to the cellarage. And the nickname for the cellarage was hell. My hunch is that Malvolio is somehow underneath the stage. Now, I don't know how he would have done that. Well, you could just hear him yelling.
3: Well, he's supposed to be in some kind of dungeon
1: yeah i i'm I would bet that he's actually underneath the stage. now, does that mean that the audience couldn't hear him? I, I mean, excuse me, couldn't see him they I doubt they could have seen him, but they probably could have okay heard him so as a side note, um I keep going back to Hamlet because it's just kind of like the archetypal Shakespeare play. If you remember when the ghost first appears
2: to Hamlet, he
1: hey, appears...
2: Hey. Yes. Okay, I want to just comment on your... I just noticed something that I yeah. think might sub- support your stage, your under-the-stage thing. So, you know how so, the clown says right above this, it hath bay windows transparent as barricadas, uh-huh. and the Clara stories toward the south-north are lustrous are as lustrous as ebony, and yet that complaints of obstruction. Weren't the Clara stories, isn't that were those upper windows so like you could if he was underground and the windows that were up high right were open basically you're saying well up here it's all you know, he's basically saying up here on the stage where there's plenty of space to see because the windows up here are all open
3: uh-huh. well, i think i think tim is exactly right when you read those lines thinking malvolio is actually in a dark confined space then though that whole conversation is hilariously funny right it's he's so saying, funny the other one's saying no it's not he's looking at no it's not it's plenty of light look all these windows you must be crazy i'm not crazy i'm telling you i'm in the dark but the fact that he's saying this just to a voice under the stage is that's hilarious and And that
1: we could have seen the clown above the stage he's perfectly visible he's describing perhaps you're right david clear stores. perhaps he's describing the actual structure of Shakespeare's play and to have Malvolio be saying from beneath the stage, I'm not mad, Sir Tobez. I say to you, this house is dark. You know, like, <laughs> I'm really blind down here. <laughs> I the audience would have loved
2: that. <laughs>
3: And then the and say, Yeah, but no look, i ignorance.
2: Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. So, anyway, I didn't, I just didn't want to run away. I wanted to mention that before we. Yes. That's so, okay, go on and talk about what you well, were Well, Ham-
1: Hamlet's father, when he first appears to Hamlet, he's visible to all of us. And then Hamlet kind of makes this long, beautiful oath to revenge his father. And uh, then Hamlet's two buddies show up after he's sworn his oath. And Hamlet's father uh, says he. We hear his voice swear, and he's. Tr- it sounds like he's trying to get Hamlet's buddies to swear to an oath to not tell anybody what Hamlet has seen. And there's there's either a stage direction. No, it's one of Hamlet's lines. He says something to the effect of um, that voice is coming from down there which would have been really powerful because Shakespeare, excuse me, Hamlet's father was confined in hell for a certain time um, and he freed to walk the earth for a certain time. But it seems like his soul is in hell because he he died in sin. He died before he could confess. So anyway, that's another example of Shakespeare. That's a hard thing to read if you're not... If you're not looking at Shakespeare's actual play with an actual trapdoor and with and actors to who could me be heard,
3: you've mentioned this to me before. This would be something that would be missing from a modern staging of it as well, right? If you just had the black box kind of um, set up, you wouldn't have mm. a sense that he was really under the stage in hell. Mm.
1: Right, the version that I have watched before the Kenneth Branagh version, they build a little kind of sloped prison into the stage, but he's on top of the stage. He's just in a prison. He's not below the stage.
2: I'm so fascinated by this idea of him being under the stage, which interestingly would make him on the same level as the audience. Yeah, and, and him being under the stage, but you can't see him, but you can just hear his voice. And like I, the actor would have to project. But I think, I mean that that must have been hilarious. It must have been so funny. And then I love how you get this transition where he's... They, obviously, they start talking about Pythagoras and Wildfowl. <laughs> and it just it gets <laughs> random... because he's trying to prove he's not mad. But yes.
0: Then
2: Malvolio Angelina says, make the trial of it in any constant question. And here's that idea of constancy again mm-hmm. that you talked about in the first few acts. So what is the... What do you think is the... Um, purpose or effect or use of the specific question about Pythagoras concerning wildflower? F- wildflower. Oh. Do you think there's, a, I mean, is it just My Shakespeare being funny? My note this
3: refers to the Pythagorean doctrine of the transmigration of souls. So I don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah, mine does. That's, <laughs> why he, that's why he responds, the soul of Grandam might happily inhabit a bird. Yes, hmm. I'm going to have to just say I don't know what all that means.
2: Well, he and then the clown says, "What thinkest thou of this of his opinion?" And then Malvolio says, "Well, I think nobly of the soul, and no way approve of his opinion." So, like, <laughs>
3: <you get> very, <laughs> very well remain in the darkness. So, it has something to do serious. with knowledge and ignorance again, right?
2: R- yes, yeah. The,
3: the only other thing I wanted to say about scene two in Mavolio, his constant saying, "This this house is in the dark. This house is a darkness." Is that? we have had two houses, you know, again, Shakespeare, I mean, just, uh, you know, my, my, my baby, my love and literature is structure. That's, that's my baby. And, um, part of the reason i'm madly in love with shakespeare is because of the structure what he does with the structure and everything is so balanced and in perfect harmony with one another and we've talked about how all of these characters are doubles and pairs and they're all being set off in contrast and so essentially the action of this play involves two houses right the house of orsino and the house of olivia and we've literally been going back and forth between these houses and he's been showing us over and over it's the same house it's the same house it's really the same house and the cl- even the fact that the clown goes back and forth and Viola goes back and forth. Those are the two characters that have any sense at all, the clown and Viola, and they are of neither house and they go back and forth between the houses. Mm. Um, yeah. And so when Malvolio is imprisoned in this dark house and he says, this house is dark, he's saying that those houses are dark. All of the houses are dark. Olivia's mm. house is dark. Arsino's house is dark. And it's the darkness of ignorance. Mm. There's no self-knowledge in those houses. Mm.
2: Tim, if if Shakespeare had been performing well, I mean he obviously was, but when they were performing the the play, um, would would they how would they have done these two houses on the stage in the sixteen hundreds or late fifteen hundreds or whatever? Would it have been on off would they have been two different houses and on opposite sides of the stage and they would have um actually kind of used each half of the stage to represent where those houses were or would they have done the whole like high school theater thing where you move different sets on and off or would they have been very generic? How, how would they have done that? Do you know?
1: I don't know except for, I'm pretty confident they didn't move sets on. I think they probably solved it by having one side of the stage be one house, one side of the stage be the other house. But as far as like how much they built their stages out to kind of I just don't think that they dressed their sets oh gosh I'm not being very clear
2: well so they would have just kind of kept it minimal
1: i th- oh, my God. hunch is they would have kept it minimal now this because because the stage would have been the stage would have been relatively fixed you know there would have been right. hell believed below the stage there would have been kind of a painting of the cosmos above the stage but I don't think they would have had bulky fixtures, a lot of bulky fixtures, um, because the scenes are changing from place to place so so rapidly. They just didn't have time for that.
3: Where was the trap door? Would that have been in the middle? I think it would have been in the middle. Well, see, then that totally supports the idea. Then Malvolio was also in the middle of these two houses saying, This house is dark, this house is dark. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah
2: it's almost there's almost like a no man's land aspect to it yeah there is yeah
0: yeah
1: i mean part of the part of the issue also is that they're probably performing multiple different plays they at least had the capability of performing multiple different plays on successive nights which let's just stop and think about that (laughs) memorizing a shakespeare play is so monstrously challenging and these lovely actors probably had 15 full plays if not more in their head at a time that they could perform on successive nights it's bewildering to somebody who lives in the digital age where our memories are just not at least we don't think they're as valuable as we used to they're certainly
2: not as exercised
1: they're definitely not as exercised Um, and they had the capacity to perform a different play every night. And my hunch is that they could memorize at a speed that to me is unfathomable.
2: Well, and you know, uh, there was, it wasn't like they were able to get print copies of things. So the memories, like I said, they were, they were exercised in a different way. So that muscle was probably in pretty good shape. So there was a culture of having, um, strong, memory muscles so to speak you know i never yeah. thought of
3: this before but i bet the extremely um predictable pattern of a shakespeare play would have really aided them in their ability to memorize right. and always know where they are in the story
2: hmm. i bet you're right and of course the language for them wasn't it was their language i mean it was dressed yes. was played with i mean it's poetry
3: ones, but... though nobody really spoke like that
2: no 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 i yeah yeah you're right I, but there's at least it was more like the way they spoke than the yes, way they spoke. yes yes so hey, can
0: I,
1: can I mention a pro tip for um, one word? As if people want to try to read Shakespeare, you know, in a class or around their dinner table in their living room, there's a word that everybody reads that I have always read in a certain way that's probably not the way that we read it. And that's the word O, just the letter O. That's probably not... OH. H. It's probably an exhalation of emotion. Um, so it's, you know, like when you read Shakespeare, you read, oh, my brains are bewildered by such, you know, but it's probably, oh, my brains are so bewildered. It's, it's last almost a, on 4.1. The last line on 4.1. Is
0: yeah, there so, an
2: O?
3: Yeah. yeah. Oh, say so and so be Olivia. Right is the exit.
2: So he she says, "Wouldst thou be ruled by yes, me?" Yes, there Sebastian it is. says, "Madam, I will." And so then you're saying she's she's exhaling some sort of emotion. Yes. Say oh, so. Yes, and
3: so she be. is. Sebastian just said he's in.
2: <laughs> he did. He just said he's yeah. in. So you're yeah. saying yeah. you're saying he didn't just confess that he wanted to be in, and then she was like, "Oh, say so and so be." <laughs> oh, say. So so. Be.
3: Women so well.
2: (laughs) I know, I know. I really.
3: That's just how we are.
2: I
1: know. Oh
3: wait, you want to marry me? Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) And that's such a that's such an opportunity for actors. Like, what does that emotion, that just sort of like primal emotional sound, sound like? If it doesn't sound like oh, say so and so be. What would it sound like? Which kind of funny. My Shakespeare teachers used to really get frustrated with me because I kept defaulting into saying, Oh, say so and so be. And Sparky Roberts would just be like, Tim, it's not. Oh, it's an exhalation of emotion. But that's, I don't know, that was a little bit of a challenge for me um, because I don't know, a well, raw showing of emotion is not the like southern pastor's kids way <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's but also like oh oh say so and so be there's like uh-huh. it's you can memorize that you can't memorize
1: an exhalation, an exhalation. of emotion yeah you,
2: you have to internalize it and then externalize it like it has to become a part of your your interpretation and your your characterization of the scene like it's going to yes. be so much more than just the letter or the word that's in your head. It becomes, Absolutely. Then it, it, that's much more challenging.
3: I love that. I'm so glad you said that because now I'm thinking Olivia has been chasing this man for four acts. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks it's the same man. Yeah, was... And he's finally said yes. So you better believe there's an exhalation of emotion coming out of there. What? Absolutely.
1: Hi. Right. <laughs> okay. There's so many, it's so fun to go back and read Shakespeare plays that you know well and just search for those O's because they're so, they're just such fun opportunities for the actor. I mean, again, Hamlet, his his first soliloquy begins with a big O, O that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. So what does that O mean at the beginning of that soliloquy? Mm. um that's okay. a fun decision to make it's a fun emotional outpouring to convey
2: well and in if you look at uh the end of three you know the scene where um viola antonio thinks Violet is like abandoning him and um
0: mm-hmm, doesn't, mm-hmm. Is, is
2: ignoring him because you get antonio saying but oh how vile and idol proves this god and you can you can sense if you think about it that way you can sense this like the opposite of, of what olivia is feeling right it's this, yes it's this, like, yes viola's last anger. word
3: in act viola's literal last sentence in act three is an o and the, so then that flips around to olivia's o and it's going to be two very different o's because she's saying oh you don't love me <laughs>
2: uh-huh uh-huh you know <laughs> Yeah. So at the end of three, so Antonio says, "But oh, how vile and idle proves this god." So there's anger in that one. And then a few lines later, Viola says, "But prove true imagination, oh, prove true." So there's like longing in that one. Yes.
3: Yeah, and, and her last line is, "Oh, yeah. if it proved tempests are kind and salt waves fresh in love," and then she exits.
2: Yeah, yeah. So when I was talking to Benedict Whalen, he said that one of the things he runs into sometimes is they'll be he'll have um a couple students read a line or whatever or they'll they'll be talking about what they'll be talking about is say hamlet soliloquy and um one student will say it seems like he's really angry here and then mm. another student will say it seems like he's really sad here
0: mm.
2: so then what he'll do is he'll say okay you think he's angry read it as if he's angry and then he'll turn to the and then that kid'll do that and then he'll turn to the other student and say you think he's sad so why don't you read it as if he's as if he's sad and so when they do that they have to interpret each line each word it, according to that lens that they felt at, how they first felt about it and then that opens up all kinds of conversation about what Shakespeare is doing with the language oh and, i and, love that um and so you know you don't have to read you can read they can even re- could even read like four or five words you know and and still be able to to get at that and it's really interesting to think about how he You know, a little word like that can affect so much of how you interpret, uh, you know, a a soliloquy or or a series of lines. So in, you know, that, oh, in Hamlet could be anger or it could be sadness. It could be frustration. It could be disorientation. It could be, you know, any number of things. Um, Yeah. And it can, that's the thing about Shakespeare is one word, one letter in this case can mean so much. Yeah. That's not true of just anybody. (laughs) Yes,
0: and again, for
1: for me, it's 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 because he is giving an opportunity to to actors that O that standalone letter doesn't really mean anything aside from the emotional context that surrounds it, and so he's just giving he's giving the opportunity for the actor to just respond with his body hmm. um and in like just kind of like uh, convey in a volcanic sort of fashion what that emotion is
2: they also seem like he's giving <laughs> him some freedom to to kind of yes. play with it yes to try things
0: okay, go ahead, so go I ahead have
3: so this is like this is a legitimate question. So, you know, as y'all are talking, I'm thinking to myself. But but Shakespeare wrote these parts for sp- specific people that he knew very well. Obviously, there's a lot of trust there, and, and he could you know write for certain people knowing what they could give to the role, right? right. um and, and so before the show started, before we started recording, we were talking about um you know that Shakespeare never wanted these published in his own lifetime, which that raises the question to me: of, Did he ever want some other troupe to perform these, or were these really written for specific people and you know he he knows how Richard Burbridge is going to de- deliver that line, right? But he doesn't know mm. how some other guy, two hundred years later, is going to is going to deliver the line four hundred yeah. years later, five hundred years later. Like, did 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 you? If he did not want them published, which he did not, it was all done after his death. The actors put it together. But so what does that mean? Did he not want, or did it just not occur to him that other troops would put this? I mean, obviously at the time people were putting off, on ripped-off editions of Shakespeare, yeah. right? I mean, our listeners yeah. might not know that, but people would sit in the audience and furiously scribble down everything that was being said and watch it over and over and get it as close as they could, and then they'd go put on a knockoff Hamlet where, you know, it was a third of the lines and it was a big mismatch mess. And so, obviously, Shakespeare wants to protect it. I'm sure that was part of his, his the reasons why he did not publish things, because he's trying to maintain control over his own work. But
2: Yeah, I think ben it's just John- a, like Ben Johnson was very like he had the total control over the publication of his work, and so I think that it's probably just a lot of work, and and it's very expensive. Like Ben Johnson paid to have his works published and bound and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, that's a great question, though. That's a great question.
1: You know, David, I don't, I don't know. Well, Angelina also. Do, when we we when we're saying Shakespeare didn't want these published, do we mean that he opposed their publishing or that he did not write them with the expectation that he that they were going to be published? What do we mean by that?
3: That's a good question because there's so much scholarship devoted to this, and I don't even know if we even agree with what we mean, right? I guess we can all agree he didn't physically go do it. He didn't agree.
0: Well, and right. he didn't
2: expect it to be done. Like it wasn't, I don't, he didn't write it with that purpose in mind. I don't
3: know that he can even say that. I mean, his friends did it. So how do we know that there wasn't?
2: I guess I just thought that I've read that he, I've read that people, I've read from experts that he didn't expect it. Like he, he, it was never an intention to have them printed. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember, or I don't know if it was because of the finances of it or he just didn't, wasn't interested. Right. I, I can't really answer the
3: question. Well, that raises in my mind the second question though. I mean, why would a, okay, so why would a playwright not want actors to put on his play after he's dead? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if he, and That's so my if he question does. also, right? Like, well, is it that the point of why you write a play? You want it to be performed?
2: Well, and of course he did get pretty rich off them. Um, during mm-hmm. his lifetime, but but maybe it wasn't so much that he didn't want them perform so much as he. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I'm just maybe it's just that he. it's a different thing to have them continue to be performed by professionals, as
3: but opposed you gotta to just, have like, a script, But you have to have a script. Well, it's he, got to exist in some kind of way for them to continue to put it on.
2: Well, they they existed during his life, as my understanding. Like he gave the actors scripts to continue. Right, performing.
3: and you got only your part. Right. Yeah. No one had a complete set. I mean, you you know, you would have your cues, um, but then you would you would have you would have your part. I guess I'm not comfortable with the idea of anybody taking a hard line that Shakespeare never intended for these to be published and bound because I'm thinking, well, then how would some other acting troupe get the part and be able to put it on? And surely you can't. I'm not ready to say Shakespeare only wanted these actors to do it and nobody else, and so he was like, "Burn it all when I die." No, yeah,
1: just, it's, a, it's a good point. It's, yeah, I don't. I'm with I'm with Angelina. If I read that in Virgil. a book, yeah, right, right.
3: Bury them with me.
1: If I if I read in a book that Shakespeare opposed the publishing of the plays, I would just kind of flag that as a uh, Well, unless a read he by actually author,
2: wrote it, which
1: would be tough to do <laughs> from the other side of the
2: veil. No, but I mean, unless he as talented it, as he was, he may have written during his life. He may have written about. I mean, I'm sure he communicated with people about it. So. I, I, but I mean, at this point, I, I don't. I'm not disagreeing with you guys at all. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. you know, I'm just thinking. It's laughing. just
3: such a slippery slope when we start getting involved with what's the author's intention. I mean, Virgil's intention was to burn it, and thank God we didn't listen to that. You know, like
2: right. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, the Aeneid's kind of meh, but. Um. <laughs> 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 um Can you Shakespeare getting buried with his plays is like that's like the most art becoming life thing I can imagine. Like that's straight out of something a character in one of his plays would have done. Yes, right.
1: It's
3: it's a totally melodramatic Angelina move. So I respect it. I just don't think he would have done it.
1: (laughs) All right, let's Kafka. Kafka wanted the same things done. He wanted to burn all of his stuff. I think his friend had a. I think he actually requested his friend burn them after his death, and. I'm glad that his friend disobeyed. <laughs>
2: well, anyway.
1: this
3: is why I choose my friends very carefully with my right. orders, burning my stuff. Like you got to be trustworthy.
2: <laughs> exactly. I okay. will
3: haunt you. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wonder if Shakespeare came back and haunted all his, his friends.
3: Well, or that's her. why there's ghosts in his play, David. Come on.
2: Oh yeah. Oh, duh. Um, hey, who's going to play the ghost, but the ghost, right? Um, right. Oh, perfect. So- so, let's give some no, final I read thoughts here. Shakespeare we got to played Malvolio
3: up. in this play speaking of the ghost. Say again. I read that Shakespeare played Malvolio in 12th night that this was his role. David, didn't you
2: ask
1: that in the first podcast? I asked. No, I think I
3: mentioned it. I, asked, oh, I mentioned yeah. it and he said you didn't know.
2: I asked who played um uh Bottom in Midsummer. Uh, Cuz I thought that they, ah. were, they were often like the same people like would play these clown mm-hmm. clownish characters. I mean, I know he's not the clown, mm-hmm. but Okay, let's wrap this up. We need to we need to um, come up with some final thoughts here. So if you have any final thoughts to say, just hurry up and say them as we can get out of here. I got
1: no final thoughts, David. I, didn't I also have
3: no final
2: thoughts. Good, good.
3: <laughs> David's just cracking the whip and I'm feeling really nervous.
2: <laughs> Lisa I waited until
3: the end. I got the, the Malbec to call me down right now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks to everybody for the mall back for Angelina. No, um, but we do need to wrap it up. So um, I, we shall do so. Uh, thank you to everyone who's been contributing on Patreon. Um, we, it's a big fundraising time for us. Um, as you know, the end of the year is for most nonprofits. So I know you're probably getting money requests. Like you know, your mailbox is probably just full of them. You're just like overflowing onto your driveway, and you've mowed over them a few times and raked leaves over them and so forth. But if somehow ours manages to make it inside, we hope that you will consider contributing to um, our cause here. Um, your contributions whether it's on patreon or through our matching fund this year um go a long way to making sure that we can keep doing things like this um and pay our people and produce more resources and do more free stuff and all that kind of stuff so your support goes a long way and thank you for um the support that you've given us uh, so far i speak for angelina and tim when i say thank you for contributing to to the patreon in particular as relates to this show and of course to everybody one more time to everybody who contributed to those wonderful Christmas gifts. Wow. Thank you. Oh yes! Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. David, okay. I did think of a final thought. Is it too late for me to say it? I'll be really fast.
2: Okay. Hurry up. <laughs> hurry up.
3: Well, Tim, Tim pointed out that, um, in an earlier episode that we know a comedy is going to end with weddings, but the question of this play is who is going to end up being married to who. And I think it's really funny that act four ends with finally someone has locked down an engagement, but it's two strangers
1: yeah (laughs) that's a great point
2: that is a good point all right well let's so now we'll unravel all the rest of that through one one more scene actually act five is all one scene so we'll talk about that next week and then the week after that the week after christmas i believe that would be we will talk about your questions so feel free to start sending us questions on the facebook page or via email we will start cataloging those for the q a episode And then after that, we'll kick off the new year with a little discussion of the books that we read this year before we launch into Howard's End that's
3: why i have a few weeks to really pad my reading list i gotta get cracking
2: oh man i'm doing the same thing i'm reading like a lot of short books um (laughs) and then so this is what i'm thinking for after howard's end is i think i want to go ahead and do true grit i think that's i've been rereading it to make sure it's okay i think that's the perfect book
3: i am actually i'm gonna admit this i'm actually excited to read a western this is going to be a totally new genre for me and i've been okay so a little tease there for when we get to true grit i have been walking around the last three days with a theory that the Western archetype is actually like the medieval King Arthur tale. So that's going to be our tease. That is going to nice. be the way I enter this Western.
2: Nice. All right. Well, I, as you know, I love a Western, so I will, um, I will either agree with you or fight you on it, depending on how you present it. Also, just, <laughs> for, just for some good old Western showdown here on the show. Tim, you have to do well,
3: we have to record every episode at high noon.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we're not but, yeah, on the but same. Where?
3: Terms of him <laughs> thwarting us again.
2: Have you ever read True Grit?
1: I never have. I'm just. I'm honestly. I'm just fighting. Uh, I just want Cormac McCarthy to be in our conversation so badly that I'm just trying to get over that we picked no. a western that wasn't.
3: It's, it's Mr. Wait, but we're doing. I thought we are doing Cormac McCarthy. No.
2: True Grit's not by Cormac McCarthy.
3: No. no. Oh, all the pretty horses i thought that's on our oh, list of things it, we're doing yeah, this year it's,
2: it's on it's on my list for 2018 so we'll get to it tim we'll get to it i also love cormac mccarthy so we're, we're i know tim. you i'm wondering like what's the hold up, david you love him as much as i do <laughs> i'm bridging, this is just so I'm bridging gaps.
3: tim is dying to get into some major nihilistic violence and grit and instead we're going to read howard's Inn and we're going to have high tea <laughs>
2: <laughs> who said anything about nihilism it, it, it is definitely the misconception with him in my opinion it is
1: okay well
3: i can't wait then y'all correct me i know nothing about him except from what i hear from you guys oh and justin what <laughs> other than that
2: i'm uh i'm making a list of books for 2018 to propose to you guys with a schedule for like six months of the year so um, i love it so we'll see we'll see how that works out well
3: Tim might have a stroke if we don't get to Cormac McCarthy soon so yeah we'll get
2: around yeah but we gotta we gotta keep the drama going we gotta keep like Tim's gotta be anxious about something right (laughs) that's right
3: (laughs) yeah that's what you feel like this show needs more um
2: more anxiety
3: I have not been carrying that by myself (laughs) you feel like you're you're at the office like what could possibly add more anxiety to this show
2: (laughs) Tim Tim anxiety um, he right,
3: well, <laughs> starts carrying his load I will agree with that
2: well um, yeah exactly we're we going to have like an anxiety mule um, so uh, just to you know fit in with the western theme so alright that's it This we should probably go ahead and end this episode for you know the two people who are still listening uh, for Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford and for all of us here at Circe I'm David Curran saying farewell thanks so much for listening to Close Reads and we'll talk to you next week